This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. A Buddhist master, Lin Ji, once said, if you meet the Buddha, kill him. A variation of this is, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Seems a little extreme to me. I mean, I thought Buddhists were supposed to be peaceful, zen, calm, serene. I'm no Buddhist, of course, but, you know, I like to read an occasional Buddhist text. Or I have on my desk a book that was sent to me by a friend of mine, Zen and the Art of Happiness. That's a kind of a Buddhist-based book. And, well, it turns out I've been wasting my time, haven't I? Turns out the Buddhists are insane because if they find the Buddha on their path to enlightenment, they're supposed to kill the Buddha. So just one more world religion that we ought to just confine to the dustbin. Because if that's where the religion's taking you, you know, you, if, if the religion takes you to a place where you meet the ultimate member or exemplar of the religion, the Buddha, you know, if the religion takes you to that place, and then when you find that Buddha, you're supposed to kill the Buddha. Well, from an outsider's perspective, it sounds like the train just stopped at Wacky Town. You know, you've been enjoying the, the Buddha Express to enlightenment, or so you thought. And then the conductor gets on and says, next stop, Nutsville, where we're going to find the Buddha. Finally, then we're going to kill him. Of course, none of this is to be taken literally, right? I mean, that's what the real Buddhists will tell you. You're not supposed to really kill the Buddha. It's symbolic. That's the loophole. You know, it's metaphorical. Still pretty extreme language. You know, if you find the Buddha, kill him. But it's extreme with a point, I guess. Because it does make the practitioner think a little bit about what exactly they're doing, what exactly they're trying to achieve. And in this case, I think the point of the extreme language is you're, you're not, the goal of all this Buddha stuff, Buddhism stuff, is not, you know, that you'll someday meet the Buddha, A, and then be able to fall on your knees and worship him, B, and then pat yourself on the back, C, that you, you somehow got there. I think that's the point of that extreme language, part of the point anyways. I think there's another point to that extreme language, which is if you're going along your path and you come across someone who kind of exemplifies everything that you think the Buddha should be, and they also are acting that way and claiming that they know everything, like like they're a guru or something, and then they start giving you instruction about how you should live your life and walk your path, it's dangerous in that circumstance to turn over all your agency to that person, to strictly defer to some self-appointed guru. There is, of course, an even weirder, deeper point to the extreme language of you should kill the Buddha, should you run into the Buddha on your path, which is if you think that you even understand how to recognize the Buddha, you think your mental conception of what the Buddha is, is so developed that you can, through thought and form, recognize the Buddha and articulate the Buddha through your limited mind. Well, you are, by definition, deceiving yourself and you ought to kill that, that phantom, that phony apparition that ghost, because you can't understand the Buddha with your mind. So if you think you've met the Buddha, you got to kill that Buddha because that Buddha can't exist. Well, that's weird. Weirder still is the idea that true enlightenment, true joy, 
is letting go of all those mental concepts altogether. That enlightenment is outside of these concepts. Reminds me a little bit of some instruction that I received as a as a high school art student, you know, as a fledgling artist. You know, I liked to draw and paint when I was in high school and had this really excellent teacher who taught at the University of Michigan where I grew up. Spent part of the week at the University of Michigan, and then he spent part of the week at my high school teaching arts. So that was kind of neat. And he spent a lot of time teaching us about the concept of negative space. Negative space is, is the idea that there's something that's not in the painting, the empty parts of the painting. And the empty parts of the painting, or the picture, or the composition, the drawing, were just as important as the things you drew or painted or put into the picture, the composition. And in that sense, you know, killing the Buddha is sort of, sort of an acknowledgement of the negative space of life, that a lot of the joy, peace, sense of love, sense of security can be found outside, beyond, away from all the mental constructs, conceptions that we use to explain life. Well, that, that's kind of weird. The question one has to always ask at this juncture is, well, is that a true principle? Does that make sense? And does anyone else, except the murderous Buddhists and the weird high school art teachers really subscribe to that view, which, of course, merely sends us back into thought and the conceptual, but we're going to stay there for just a little bit because, well, we got to start somewhere. Well, if you think about it for more than two seconds, you realize that, well, lots of people subscribe to that view, especially us. Because what's the first thing that we teach our children in primary before we teach them about Jesus, before we teach them about Joseph Smith, before we teach them the moral code or word of wisdom or any of that stuff? The first thing we teach them is about prayer. We're taught how to pray. We're told if you fold your arms, if you bow your head, and if you say a few words that you can actually communicate with, with a being that's not in the room with you, that's not even in this dimension on earth that we live. And part and parcel of any good instruction about prayer is the corresponding instruction to wait and to listen and to be silent after the prayer is done. Because there's something in that silence, in that peace, in that moment of not doing, not thinking, not conceptualizing. And I think for many people, the most comforting aspect of prayer is at the end when you just feel peace. You can't really articulate it. It's ineffable. If you're praying about a problem, you often can't say what the solution to the said problem that you're praying about is, assuming you get some sort of answer as a result of your prayer, that is, your prayer about the problem. Even if you feel like you're getting an answer to that type of prayer, it's hard to articulate what exactly the answer is. There's no words. There's no mental constructs. Often, when you're receiving what you perceive to be an answer to a prayer or a solution to your problem via prayer, but you'll often receive peace, and so it's beyond all that, the listening part, that is, the listening to the silence and the warmth and the peace and the whatever that is, the receiving, the stillness that comes after an effective prayer. Well, what is that? That's the negative space. That's the silence. That's the emptiness. That's the, well, I'm not going to say the dead Buddha, but I'm going to say that's the dismissed Buddha, the dismissed conceptualization. Yet that silence, that negative space, that's something too. And if we pay attention to it, we realize that that feels way better than whatever our minds tell us about our great conceptualization. And that's kind of a weird thing. 
but it's awesome, but we want to articulate it, but we can't. It's something we feel or know. It's connected to something that we are. When you go deeper into that space, you realize that all the clutter in your mind, all the worries that your conditioning produces in you are just that, mere clutter, mere noise. Dieter F. Uchtdorf talked about this a little bit when he said to doubt your doubts. He said that in a conference talk. And of course, at its most fundamental, what he's talking about is doubting the noise and clutter produced by your mind. Not the useful, productive product, not the helpful stuff that you use day in and day out. But doubt the monkey chatter, the noise. And go deeper to this negative space where things can only be understood on a spiritual level. It's where prayer ultimately takes us when it's done right and consistently. I think that's kind of arrogant to say, I know, but I think it does. Because it's at that place, in the silence, in the negative space, where there's no mental conceptualization, no thinking that you realize you have everything you need right now. Well, that's curious. Sounds a lot like being saved, doesn't it? Could it be that simple? Is salvation as simple as waking up and realize you've been saved already? Is that what it is? That you're a being of light? A realization that comes only in the stillness after you've set aside all the noise produced by your conditioned mind? Well, it turns out we sort of teach that too, kind of like prayer. The second thing we teach people is Jesus will save you through what we call the atonement or through grace. And it turns out Dieter F. Uchtdorf gave a talk about being saved as well. Interestingly, he based his talk on Mormonism's favorite scripture, one that separates us, in theory anyways, from the rest of Christianity. It is, of course, 2 Nephi 25-23, which reads, For we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. And then here's the most famous part of that verse. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved, after all we can do. Which, of course, we as a community have always interpreted to mean you got to really work hard and earn your stripes. You got to do all the prerequisites, get all the boxes checked. And once you take all the prerequisite courses and you pass them with flying colors, then you realize how deficient and inadequate you are. And then maybe if you're lucky, God will show up and through his grace, he'll, okay, let you in reluctantly to heaven. But if you don't do all you can do, if you don't do every single thing that you can do, if you don't get every prerequisite finished, get an A on every test, well, then you haven't done all that you can do. And, you know, you'll be the waiters and the waitresses in the terrestrial kingdom, or you're going to be the janitor in the terrestrial kingdom, or the, you know, driving the garbage truck in the ex-burbs, or, you know, because there'll be no grace for you because you didn't do all that you can do. You didn't earn it, so there'll be no little extra. That's the way we understand it, but Dieter F. Uchtdorf addressed this straight on, I think, in one of his talks. And he gave what sounded a lot more like a kill the Buddha, go into the silence, make sure your composition is full of a lot of negative space kind of talk about this specific scripture. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he almost seemed to say that when you're saved by grace which comes after all you can do. It's because after you do all that you can do, you realize you can't do much. And when you realize you can't do much yourself, it's then that you appreciate. It's then that you can accept. It's then maybe that you're even eager for grace. 
That may sound the same on the surface, but let's go through how it's a little bit different than our traditional understanding of this scripture. And again, let me just say, I have no business talking about this. I have no authority, so, you know, maybe you ought to just turn this off right now if this is upsetting anybody. But what I think Dieter is teaching us is one of the reasons we're supposed to do all that we can do, or one of the reasons we do do all that we can do, is because at the end of that, we're primed to really appreciate the great gift of grace. You know, it's kind of like walking through the desert, and you're walking and walking and getting hotter and hotter and hotter and sweating and sweating and becoming more and more dehydrated. And then when you finally get the canteen of water at the end of the long hike, boy, does it taste good. Well, I think that's what Dieter F. Uchtdorf is saying about the all you can do and the grace. He changes the all you can do from a prerequisite to merely a point of comparison. Now, in Dieter's defense, he may not have meant that at all, but that's what I mean when I talk about grace and the atonement. We understand it at the end of our mental constructions, at the end of the forms that we think we're creating. We understand it all when we finally kill the Buddha, all that previous effort merely serving as a point of comparison. Adam Miller spoke about this. He said that grace is not a backup plan in one of his books. In fact, that's part of the title of one of his books, in which he reviewed Paul's epistle to the Romans. And he says, grace is not a backup plan. Grace is the plan. And I notice kind of two reactions from people when they consider this notion. The first react like Inspector Javert in Les Miserables. You remember that guy? He was the real black and white, justice-oriented inspector general who chased Jean Valjean all around Paris trying to catch him. And when he realized that Jean Valjean had actually transcended his life as a thief through grace and love, well, the inspector general can't take it and he kills himself. So I guess he's clinging on to mental constructs a little too tightly, I guess would be one way of putting it. And some people, when you tell them that you don't actually earn salvation or you present them at least with that idea that they're, that they're not going to earn it through their works, earn grace through their works, which of of course, is a contradiction in terms. They get kind of huffy and mad, and they're like, no, I, you know, as if they really want the arduous burden of, of saving themselves. They love it. it. Gives them a sense of control. It gives them a sense of status. I'm not quite sure what it gives them, but it gives them something that they love. And the prospect of losing that makes them suicidal to the point where maybe they're thinking about killing themselves instead of the Buddha that they've constructed for themselves. Of course, it's all ego. It's all mind stuff. And that's what's reacting badly to the idea that grace is free, because it eliminates the need for the ego. In the other camp, when they consider this, they're greatly relieved, because they had been suspecting it all along, that there was something much simpler on on the one hand, and yet something much more profound on the other hand about life and about grace and about what we're doing here. And those who are really relieved, I've found, when they consider this idea of grace, this unencumbered, unearned sense of grace. They're relieved not because they're lazy. They're relieved because they're just worn out. They're relieved because it's their lives have kind of been like trying to break down the brick wall with their heads over and over and over. They're they're at the point of maximum frustration and suffering. And so when you tell them, hey, there's some guy who's got an excavator and he's just going to come in one fell swoop and knock the brick down and you can go on about your merry way. Oh, what a sense of relief. 
And what a sense of appreciation in all their works, of course, done previously, don't earn the grace that they're subsequently given, but merely enable them to appreciate it and most importantly, accept it. And that's what's required at the end of the day to go into the negative space, to go into this silence and to appreciate it. You have to give up a certain sense of yourself. You have to give up the ego. And if you're not ready for that, it's, it's terrifying. Because the ego may be a devil, but at least it's the devil you know. And it's hard to give up the devil you know. I mean, it is until you're just so sick of that devil that anything would be better. That's the point often that life brings us. That's the point of suffering, I think. That's why I think suffering stops when you just don't need it anymore. So back to the original question. No, I don't just think it's the murderous Buddhists and the flaky art teachers of this world who are into killing the Buddha, are into the negative space, are into the silence, are into the unconstructed, unformed, unmanifested part of life. There's a great seldom read book in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes. It's, it's pretty boring. Maybe that's why it's seldomly read. But the writer of Ecclesiastes, for a good portion of the book, is writing about all the things in life, and then he concludes that all the things in life are mere vanity. Oh, it's just vanity. Riches, learning, striving, becoming, all is vanity. People think that Solomon is the writer of Ecclesiastes because he says that he, the preacher, that's how he refers to himself in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher. He also says, I, the preacher, was a king in Israel. So some people think that it was Solomon, David's son, who ended up being, by some accounts, the richest man in the world and the wisest man in the world and built the greatest palace and the greatest temple. He was the most accomplished Israelite king in the history of the Old Testament. And there he is at the end of all that he can do, which in his case was a lot, bemoaning the fact that it was all vanity. Well, in one sense, he's saying it can't compare to the peace you feel at the end of an effective prayer, even though that peace is completely ineffable. It can't compare to the love of God, the spiritual connection, the eternal connection that you feel as a being of light. It, all you can do, all that you can achieve is mere vanity. And what's vanity? It's a, it's a construct of your mind. It's mental clutter. It's noise produced by your ego as your ego tries to run your life, tries to stay in the position of the hijacker of your soul. Let's assume that Solomon did write Ecclesiastes. It's kind of interesting that the richest man in all the world would end up in such a state of despair, completely unfulfilled. Well, that's the fruits of all we can do. I suspect when grace came to Solomon, as it, I'm sure it did, because it'll come to all of us, I believe, I suspect at that point he was quite relieved, quite relieved to unburden himself. Not in the sense that he's confessing sin, mind you. Not in the sense that he has to, be, to humble himself and you know, prostrate himself and convey obeyance, but in the sense that he just really got it through his own experience, through his own suffering, through his own achievements and the associated empty feeling that came with those achievements and status and wealth. All those things, in a sense, represented his Buddha, and he would have done well to have killed it a long time ago. Had he done that, he may have enjoyed his great wealth, all of his accomplishments, all of his achievements, because he wouldn't have been attached to him. 
His ego wouldn't have been constantly judging, 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 wanting more, more, more. He would have known that he was a being of light that lived in the silence, the non-conceptual world. All this brings us back, as many of these podcasts do, to Jesus' great admonition to not judge. Judge not, lest you be judged. And it's hard when you're driven by your vanity, by your ego, to stop judging. You have to go somewhere else. You have to go into the negative space of the composition of your life. Jesus did this often. He left. He went to meditate. He went to the mount. He went into the garden. Away from the conceptualized world. Away from the complicated theology of the Pharisees. Away from the questions often posed to him by those Pharisees to trap him. And he stayed in that place even as he was being scourged. Even as he was being lifted on the cross where he said, Forgive them to the Romans who were nailing him to the cross and raising him up. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're lost in the world of concepts and laws and ideas and thoughts and form. And they can't feel the still small voice anymore, assuming they ever could. Jesus had the ability to transcend it all. And what an example of transcendence. It's good to remember that great transcendence as we get lost in the judgments of our mind, of whatever's currently happening minute by minute. In that sense, the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, who may be Solomon, he was right. It's all vanity. On one level, it's just all vanity, which of course isn't you. There's a story in our own seminal book of scripture, the Book of Mormon, that kind of illustrates this as well. Nephi, as you know, was the obedient son, the good son, the noble son. He had done everything right. He had been obedient picked as the leader, led the group, was the great hunter, finder of the Liahona. Well, in chapter 4 of 2 Nephi, Nephi himself writes about how miserable he is, how he's drooping in sin, how he has seen and experienced the condescension of God. Yet he's drooping in agony, frustrated by how easily he is tempted. It's an unusual passage of scripture. I mean, especially compared to everything else that Nephi wrote. Because everything else that Nephi wrote, he, he was kind of, I don't want to say brag. He wasn't bragging, but he certainly was describing himself as, you know, quite the gospel stud muffin. In today's terms, he would have been the scripture mastery champ. Then he would have been the ZLAP on the mission. Then he would have come home and been in a bishopric, a bishop before age 30. You know, he was that guy. He did everything right. Yet, there he is in Second Nephi chapter 4, just beating himself up. You know, the guy's suffering because of his sins. And I can't imagine that Nephi was committing any great sins in the sense that most of us think about sins. You know, I don't think he was going on night raids to the Lamanite camps and kidnapping their women. And, you know, maybe he was, I don't know. That he was, you know, stealing from the Nephite treasury. I have a different interpretation. I think you can guess what it is. I think Nephi was getting near the end of his life realizing he was living in a world of conception, a world of judgment, a world of his ego. And his ego, you know, was tilted towards the righteous, but it veered off into religiosity. It was tilted towards the good, but veered off into being highly judgmental, being self-righteous. And now his own ego was turning on him, making him feel terrible. Oddly, I think that Nephi, at that point in his life, still had a little bit of work to do, or 
a little bit of work to stop doing, a little bit of listening, a little bit of stillness needed to be put into Nephi's life. This passage of scripture is interesting because we often think that once we stop engaging in bad conduct, then everything will be fine. I think the psalm of Nephi disabuses us of that notion. Because you can still have a pretty strong, dominant, judgmental ego, while your conduct, on the surface at least, looks pretty good. But God is merciful. And God has a point for all this judgment, all this agony, all this suffering. Because all the suffering we experience makes the grace that inevitably comes feel so good, feel so redemptive. It can be scary to let go of everything that you think you are, everything that you think you've been taught to be. It can be scary to let go of the report card that you've been using to grade yourself, especially if your grades are pretty good. But freedom comes when you stop judging yourself, others. Freedom comes when, should you encounter the conceptual Buddha in your life, along your path, maybe you don't kill him, but you at least dismiss him and let the silence and the stillness and the negative space of your composition live in its place. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.